Good morning, listeners, or possibly good afternoon, depending on what time you're playing this. Uh, this is Richard Flynn, uh, the host of Staved Off, and thanks very much for downloading episode seven of our podcast. Um, you are going to be hearing a certain amount uh, in this episode about the history of St. Mary's Cathedral Choir, uh, and uh, that all follows on from a recent uh, 200th anniversary event which took place at the beginning of August 2018. But in editing this episode I've realised that I have to make uh, an apology uh, because I made a bit of a mistake when we were doing the recordings uh, about the identity of various early colonial priests. Now um, Father John Joseph Terry, whom you'll hear mentioned, he was one of the first official priests to be appointed to the colony of New South Wales and he was never, as far as I know, uh, asked to leave the colony. The man who came, who only spoke Irish and came under his own steam, that was Father Jeremiah O'Flynn. We think Catherine Fitzpatrick, who founded what is now St Mary's Cathedral Choir, uh, was involved with Father Jeremiah O'Flynn in um, the celebration of Masses and so on. Uh, And uh, some of the early Catholics, like the Dempsey household and the Davis household and so on. Uh, but uh, it, it was John Joseph Terry, as I say, who then um, arrived and um, was one of the first two priests in New South Wales. So I'm very sorry about that. I, I thought I should mention it here and now at the beginning of the episode to avoid all the letters that I know we will receive uh, when you hear my mistakes. Um, but uh, both priests' names are mentioned, but they're sort of m- m- moulded into, into one confusing mess. I'm afraid, in the podcast. But I hope you don't think any less of us as a result. Thanks very much and enjoy the episode. Now, Thomas, we're back again. We are talking now a week after a great event. Yes, it was my birthday. It was your birthday. And how did you celebrate? (laughs) I celebrated by letting the choir in on my special day. But it wasn't just the ordinary choir. (laughs) No, there was nothing ordinary about it. Um, In fact, we, um, for completely other reasons, decided to celebrate the 200th anniversary of the Cathedral Choir, which happens this year. There's no day associated with it. Um, But... It just so happened that the first Sunday in August was a good time, diary-wise, to um, make a bit of a song, if not a dance, um, about that very special anniversary. But what you've very cleverly done, though, is you have let the podcast listener know uh, to mark his or her diary when your birthday is for next year. Well, they know it's that first weekend in August. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so we had um, some former members of the choir come back how many were there in total singing well, on we, that sunday we put out um, the word that we would like to invite back any former choristers or or men of the choir um to come really for a reunion and it's the first time we've done anything like that i've wanted to for years um but it seems like a simple thing to do however um without some kind of, of structure in place it's been difficult to to find Uh, I don't know, the wherewithal to make it possible. But with this special anniversary, we thought, well, this is a great catalyst to do it, so we'll just try. And thanks to Facebook, social media, email lists, and all the rest of it, we were able to get the word out, and about 50 former singers from the Cathedral Choir joined us um, to sing Mass with the current Cathedral Choir on Sunday, and my gosh, it made an amazing sound. It certainly did. I was there, and I was um, a little um, far back in the nave, and it was uh, it, 
the the choir filled the the church with with sound yeah i mean i i don't really know well i didn't have any expectations firstly i wasn't sure whether anyone would be interested i didn't know whether they'd come we did say that in order for it to work they would have to come to a rehearsal on the day before and uh, you know i thought maybe that might put some people off not that we wanted to um but no no sure enough we got uh, these 50 people um say that they wanted to do it um I thought to myself, what do you do with a whole lot of experienced singers, but all of whom are tenors and basses with, with a few countertenors? Um, but uh, that presents a bit of a problem because that would overbalance our um, 18 or so trebles in the current cathedral choir. Um, and then I hit on the idea of, of doing a mass that was written really for exactly those kind of forces. And that's Charles-Marie Vidor's mass for two choirs and two organs. Now, he actually wrote this mass for the seminary uh, in the Archdiocese of Paris. Uh, in those days, the seminary was attached to a famous Parisian parish church called Saint-Sulpice, which you may know from um, Da Vinci Code fame. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, where Vidor was the organist. There's an extremely fine grand organ in the, the church of Saint-Sulpice. Anyway, he wrote this mass for, I think, something like 200 seminarians, as there then were, um, and an SATB choir and the two organs, the choir organ and the big organ. Uh, so given that all the seminarians were tenors and basses, or probably mostly baritones, in fact, um, we do this mass already at the cathedral. Um, but normally we don't have the fortunate uh, yeah, number the, of... The vast number of forces. Exactly. Yeah. So um, that was the perfect thing to do. And I didn't know how many of them would, would know this music, but... I shouldn't have, any, uh, have had any misgivings because on the Saturday at the rehearsal, it was as though they'd been singing it all their lives i mean it just happened we started our rehearsal in the crypt and the sound down there was really glorious it was amazing um, no less impressive in the cathedral of course um, but it was nice that we were able to begin uh, at closer quarters well the crypt has a very rich acoustic doesn't it and, and i would guess i mean i wasn't at that rehearsal but i would guess that with the number of singers you would have been kind of en enveloped that in enveloped a is a good yeah. word i mean it was it was just um this great wave of sound that kept going around the building we, we just stood sort of fairly spaced out in the middle of the crypt um since there was such a, a large number and i think that only added to the effect so we started by singing and then quite soon um into the beginning of that rehearsal I wanted to ask some questions of, of the singers that were there. I wanted to know um, the people that were there representing different years, different um, eras in the cathedral's music. And I was really pleased to note that we had singers um, really from right across the, the spectrum of time. The cathedral choir in its current form, that is um, a men and boys choir with boys going to the, the school, um, was reformed in 1955 by Father Ron Harden. Uh, and we had singers that had been in Father Ron's choir. Um, Father Ron was succeeded by Father John DeLuca, and we had a number of singers who'd been in that time. Then, of course, um, my predecessor but one, David Russell, um, who was director of music at the cathedral for something like 30 years. Obviously, there were a lot of people who had been either um, men in the choir or boys that had gone through the school with David Russell. Um, others that had been trebles in the cathedral choir when i began which me meant that they had been trained previously by elizabeth swain who was uh, my immediate predecessor 
And then there were even some boys who are still at St. Mary's Cathedral College, but who's, when their voices changed, they decided not to continue as scholars, but did want to come back uh, for this occasion. So we really did have all the, all the yeah, eras covered. The full gamut. Yeah, yes. and that, that was exciting. I hadn't expected that. No, it's, it's, it's um, presumably there is, a, there is a certain sort of shared experience among some of those singers, even, even though they hadn't necessarily all met one another beforehand. It's, uh, I think that's, you've really hit the nail on the head there. That was um, something palpable about it all. And it kept uh, expressing itself at different times over the weekend. The fact that, yes, all these people, some of them knew each other very well. And it, I could see um, friendships um, b- b- just being picked up where they were left, um, you could see people that hadn't uh, communicated perhaps for years um, instantly clicking back uh, into where they'd been because it's not only the shared experience of being um, having been a chorister um, and everything that goes with that, it's also the place. And there they were back in that place, in this place, which you know had, has been so significant for so many people over the years. Yes, I mean, that's the experience, isn't it? When, when you are many years in a particular place, you know, if, if your entire schooling, it, it does have an effect on you. I mean, I was thinking the other day that I do still occasionally have dreams about one of my schools, which was uh, a, a somewhat ramshackle building and just how you get from one part of the building to the next and then how, you know, if you're not on time for class, then that becomes rather terrifying. <laughs> do you hate those school dreams? Yes, I know. And then you look down and you realise you're not wearing anything. But uh, <laughs> Well, your school was rather different to mine. Well, I said there, say, well, not, not totally, I've heard. But, uh, <laughs> so we we had some singing, we had uh, some discussion of... of who we were and where we where we were and all the rest of it. Um, then in this rehearsal, moved up to the cathedral and tried everything with with the main organ. Uh, then came the Sunday morning, and what was rather nice about that is that we had to have a space big enough to rehearse with the current cathedral choir and the former choristers. Um, we couldn't fit everybody into the song school and we couldn't rehearse in the cathedral, of course, because the earlier mass was happening. So we used the chapter hall. And that's, you know, a wonderful building on the cathedral site. Really interesting. Um, it predates certainly the, the, the modern buildings and even um, parts of the cathedral because it was built to be, well, it really is all that remains of the old Benedictine monastery that Archbishop Polding founded, uh, hence the name Chapter Hall. It has been a number of things over the years, but uh, certainly for a... a many years the choir would have i think what they called choir tea um in the chapter hall so they would have a rehearsal the men and the boys um in the afternoon early evening which would culminate in all eating a meal together in the chapter hall now we don't do that anymore which is rather sad in some ways but um certainly the chapter hall was a place that many of these uh, people had spent um, a considerable amount of time and i think had an awful lot of fun over the years any temptation to bring the choir tea back? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> no. It's a, a lot of administration required, isn't there? Yes, indeed, and, and a lot of cooking. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and I know, I mean, I know that you're often to be found with an apron on, uh, you know, of a weekend. But, but not uh, because I've been cooking. No, exactly. Um, but uh, anyway, so we had a rehearsal in there, and it was wonderful for the current choristers uh, to be able to meet some of the, the former choristers and to hear them sing and... Uh, that was a nice experience. And then really after a very short rehearsal, we had to make our way up to the cathedral and the mass began. So it all kind of piles on, doesn't it? I mean, there you were beforehand thinking, well, we'll have the rehearsal the day before. And then presumably you were thinking, ah, oh, Sunday morning, we'll clear it all up. But 
you know, before before you know it, there you are in the cathedral having to perform, for want of a better word. That, that's right, and with a lot of expectations, because we, we were fortunate enough that we didn't only have with us um, people that were able to sing, but we'd invited really anyone that had anything to do with the cathedral choir to come back for this particular occasion. Um, and there were many uh, former singers or parents or people that had been associated with the choir over the years who were there in the congregation listening. So that was wonderful as well. And of course, we had some particularly special guests. Yes. So now you are thinking of the Fitzpatrick family. Is that right? Yes. yes. Um, one of the... Um, wonderful things about our music administrator Hannah McCarthy who's featured on our podcast before of course yes indeed um, is that she's extremely enterprising when it comes to um, these kind of events it had never occurred to me that we could contact or attempt to contact the um, descendants of Catherine Fitzpatrick who started the first choir that became the Cathedral Choir 200 years ago but um, actually Hannah did exactly that and so you, you had a, a, a few representatives of the Fitzpatrick family. And what was interesting is that the Fitzpatrick name very much lives on. And we'll hear from Neil Fitzpatrick and Francis Fitzpatrick in a minute, um, as I was able to catch up with them after the Mass. But before we do that, perhaps we should just fill the listener in on uh, the foundation of the choir as we understand it. Yes, uh, and I think the first thing to say is that the choir has gone through a number of different forms in it's 200 years and for that reason we don't say that we are the oldest cathedral choir in the country um what we can say and say um, very proudly is that we are the oldest continuing musical organization um in australia and i think that encompasses the fact that yes it started um perhaps in a, a slightly different way certainly in a different place because no cathedral had been built but that that core group of singers did morph into another group of singers, which became another group of singers, all with exactly the same intent um, and in order to do the same job in this place. So what we know is that at least by 1818, Catherine Fitzpatrick, an immigrant from Ireland who'd come to be near her husband, who was a convict, got together a group of singers to sing for services such as they were happening at those times. And this is before there was even an official clerical, that is to say, priestly presence here in the in the colony of New South Wales. That's right. So there was there there's one name that that looms large in the history books, which is that of Father um, John Joseph Terry, who, as I understand it, was an Irishman who took it upon himself effectively to come and minister. He was a he was a priest who came to minister to the the mostly Irish Catholics of New South Wales, but he had no uh, no formal kind of qualification or, or indeed approval to be here. I think he only spoke Irish as well. He didn't speak English. <laughs> That's right. I mean, yeah. there are a number of remarkable things about uh, Father Terry. Yeah. But before he had come, there'd been other priests who had been able to visit, um, amongst them uh, Father O'Flynn, Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeremiah who, O'Flynn. Who yes. kept getting deported, I think, um, or sent away. Um, but in the times that he was here, um, obviously he would say Mass. Um, and whether or not it was deliberate or not, we don't know. But he did, it seems, leave the Blessed Sacrament behind. Um, it's probable that he had been uh, told to leave at very short notice. And anyway, the Blessed Sacrament remained in a private residence um, not far from the site of the cathedral, actually. Um, yes, I mean, there's a dispute about which 
prominent Catholic families, residents. Yes, but both of the the likely options are are somewhat near um, St. Patrick's Church Hill, which, of course, is not far from where we are right now anyway. Indeed. And we do know that Catherine Fitzpatrick's choir um, would uh, sing for for the celebration of Vespers. And I like the fact that um, we have restored uh, the idea of sung Vespers to St. Mary's Cathedral um, about eight or nine years ago, after it having been absent for, for a very long time. And that's one way that we are reconnecting with the very roots of Catholicism in this country. Um, which uh, before there was a priest, they couldn't have mass, but they did have vespers together. That's right. The vespers doesn't require a priest to be there, and you Indeed. know the faithful can can um, celebrate vespers. Well, celebrate is I don't know if it's necessarily the right verb, but they can they can engage with vespers. Uh, yes, exactly right. And and they would have exposition of the blessed sacrament, and the choir would sing. When Father Terry came, Catherine's choir sang for his first mass here. Mm-hmm. Um, then. Th- as the um, as the the church began to establish itself, which is to say, Father Terry got set about establishing it. Um, the services were being held in a courthouse, uh, again not very far from where the current site of the cathedral is, uh, and Catherine's choir became what was known as the courthouse choir. And we know that Catherine stayed involved uh, throughout this time because there are documented um, occurrences. Uh, in fact, she had a. a blazing argument with one of the priests involved in saying mass in the courthouse um now thomas could you as a as a cathedral musician um could you imagine ever um entering into a row with any of the the, the <laughs> clergy that you have to deal with well fortunately i've only ever had to work with um, very supportive uh, and rather wonderful yeah throughout uh, your career as a church <laughs> throughout musician my career that's yes, right excellent <laughs> so that's not something so that i can identify with it's changed all. is what you're saying yes <laughs> must have it must have done must yeah. have done um but uh, maybe what I can say is that uh, I'm certainly aware of many fiery musicians, and maybe Catherine was one of those. Yes, me too. <laughs> so we know that she was involved in and out, um, depending on uh, what was going on, uh, and that her sons stayed involved singing in the choir, um, because it's also documented when it was first, uh, when women were first drafted in, because there weren't enough Fitzpatrick children, <laughs> more or less. Yes, yeah, so she she very much re- um, relied on her own offspring for initially, yeah, initially, for the yes. choir, yeah. Um, and then eventually, the first bishop comes to New South Wales, um, Archbishop Polding, and. There is a right, or we have um, in Polding's diaries his own account of that first mass, and the choir sang what's referred to as Mozart's mass. Now, Mozart, we, we have no idea which, which Mozart mass <laughs> it was. Indeed, he wrote yeah. several of them, mm-hmm. but uh, Archbishop Polding wrote that he did not expect to have heard Mozart's mass sung here in Australia, and for it to have been sung so well. So that's rather nice. I like the fact that uh, they did that and that uh, it made an impression on the Benedictine polding. Very much so, yeah. And look, it goes from there into various different forms. When polding had his Benedictine monastery here, then certainly the choir was so-called monastic choir. That is to say that the lower parts were sung by monks, uh, but they also had boys from the, the school on site singing treble. And... In many ways, that's the the closest example of you know how the current cathedral choir traces its origin back to something as early as that. Um, when the monastery was disbanded, 
uh, instead of having a, obviously a monastic choir, um, there was an adult choir of men and women that sang um, ultimately in the, the rear gallery. As I mentioned, I, I spoke briefly to Neil Fitzpatrick and Francis Fitzpatrick, who have uh, uh, who are descendants of, of uh, Catherine and Bernard Fitzpatrick. Um, and uh, we were able to hear some of what they understand of their family history and the relationship with the choir. Neil Fitzpatrick. And you are a descendant of Catherine Fitzpatrick. Catherine and Bernard. Yeah, Bernard. And I'm Francis Fitzpatrick, and equally I'm a descendant of Catherine and Bernard. And what's interesting is that that you two are are related through the Fitzpatrick name, and this is the first time you've met today. Yes. So so let's see how this goes. (laughs) Uh, Any rows yet? No. No? no. Okay, good. This is our first conversation. So... now, 200 years ago, you know, there's no one here that's 200 years old, so we, we could say pretty much anything. But, I mean, the story about Catherine Fitzpatrick, as I understand it, is that, that she followed her husband, Bernard, who, who was transported to New South Wales as a convict. Yes, yeah. on, on the same ship. On the same ship, yep. yeah. Yep. And so she established herself here in the, you know, the new town of Sydney. Uh, no, she didn't. Oh, no, okay. No, Thank no, she, she was out west in a place in the Hawkesbury River, which is called Portland on Portland Road. Okay. And they started, they were on a farm out there. Right. Yeah, with a, another convict. Okay. And uh, then Catherine actually, uh, having met, I think it was uh, Reverend Theory, decided that that wasn't the life for her and her children, and they moved into Sydney. And um, Bernard didn't actually follow. So Bernard... <laughs> She was a very, very strong woman. Oh, so, so Bernard, Bernard had been freed at that point. I, I, I don't think I. Uh, yeah, he, he, he was free when he came out oh, here. I yeah, see. Okay. yeah, very good. But, but they gave him some land to toil. So he stayed. He stayed out west for a while, and then then he came in. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then he became a, a jail constable. Right. Yeah. And now, what's your understanding about the way that that Catherine actually went about setting up the choir? It's, it's all supposition for me, yeah, but sure. um, yeah, she made sure her sons were well educated and, and she set up a school. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. I, and so the choir just sort of followed on from yeah, that, did yeah. it? Yeah, and I know that certainly some of her sons followed Father Terry around um, as altar boys, um, so assisting in the, the church. Uh, an interesting fact is that um, in my role as a conservator at the powerhouse, I worked on convict vestments oh, yeah. um, belonging to the cathedral. And, yeah, it's just a crazy full circle because I, I like to imagine that part of it was Catherine's handiwork. And did you realise when you were working on it that you, that, that you had your own family connection? make the connections, no. Right. So it's only later that... Um, well, that's absolutely remarkable, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. You can see photos of the garments down in the crypt now. So, yeah. and, uh, and did you know of your own family connection to, to this place? And uh, to only this about part? four months ago. Oh, right. And, yeah. what, what, and what, what caused you to learn of it? Because um, my father, is, whose name was John, and John was the eldest son. Oh, yes. And there's a tradition in the family it was passed down. The eldest firstborn son was called John all the way down. Okay. And my father didn't know. No one in the family knew the actual family history. So I started looking into it, and then I finished up here. Very good. Yeah. Excellent. And so, I mean, it, it was quite an event today yeah. uh, with all these old, old former choir members who have come to join forces. I mean, have you, have you heard something like that before? Uh, 
Yes, we have. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. And um, we, we brought the, our children here um, about six months ago to, to see a service and visited the crypts. So yeah. Oh, well, it's really wonderful that, that, that we are able in the choir to have a connection back to the founder. So, so thank you both very much for the work that you've done on the, on the family history and you know, in the, in the choir's involvement in that. Yes, thank you. So 
uh, thanks to um, Neil Fitzpatrick and Francis Fitzpatrick for, for talking to me uh, after that mass. And, and then what was it that we heard just now, Thomas? That was the Kyrie from the Vidor Mass for two choirs and two organs. And certainly, as you say, quite a, quite a, a wall of sound that can be produced. <laughs> yes, a rather musical wall. No, oh, indeed, indeed. <laughs> yes. So during the years that the choir was a large uh, choir of mixed adults, of, of men and women, um, they did all sorts of rather wonderful things, and there were a succession of very interesting directors of music, um, many of whom were opera conductors, um, leaders of oratorio, and really rather important musicians uh, in the country at that time. One of them, um, Isaac Nathan, uh, who was, as I say, an orchestral and operatic conductor, um, held a number of what were called um, oratorios in the cathedral, grand concerts um, of, of music, including um, he gave the uh, Australian premiere of Beethoven's Mass in C. Um, in fact, I think rather than Australian premiere, that would have been a Southern Hemisphere premiere. Um, there were several, but another particularly interesting one was John Albert Delaney, um, who in 1903 gave a performance in the town hall using the cathedral choir that was the... Um, I think the first performance anywhere in the world outside the UK of Elgar's Dream of Grontius. And uh, Delaney must have been um, someone because we know that Elgar sent a cable to Delaney that he was able to address simply as Delaney, Sydney. Yes, that's um, quite uh, reassuring, isn't it, that if you're so well known that uh, you can just be known by your surname and your city. <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> absolutely right. Yeah. But um, by the 1950s, it was really thought that perhaps the choir needed to be um, more liturgical. And in those days, they were really looking back to a papal document that had come out in 1903, um, recommending that uh, music sung in church ought not to be this um, more florid operatic style of music, but ought to be Gregorian chant, Renaissance polyphony, mm. um, and if possible, sung by a choir of men and boys. So at this point, just to, to clarify, there, we, we know that it was men and women who were in the choir. They were all adults. That's right. Yeah. yeah. For, for, for a long period of time. Yeah. But uh, it was in 1955 that Father Ronald Harden was appointed director of music to the cathedral. And he was and a priest of this diocese, wasn't he? He was, yeah. and had been given the specific task of... Um, reforming the choir um, along the lines of what it had been during Paulding's monastic period a choir of men and boys um, to sing the the more liturgical music of the church, Gregorian chant and polyphony. Right and I was able to speak to one gentleman who was a, a chorister in the time of Father Ron Harden um, and uh, that's Michael Hissey and uh, with him was the organist emeritus as he now is, Peter Neeshaw and we had a, 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 an interesting chat as I hope you'll hear now. I'm Peter Neeshaw and I became organist at the cathedral in 1988. I'm Michael Hissey and I auditioned in 1958 under Father Ron Harden and commenced in 1959 as a chorister. So, uh, Michael, um, Father Ron Harden is seen as a sort of great reformer of the choir. Was that evident to you when you were an eight or nine year old boy that, 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 that something new was taking place? I've got to say, not as, as an eight or a nine year old, it's like being in, in a slow moving river and going with it, not knowing the current's moving. But in retrospect, as an educator, a music educator now, we received an amazingly advanced music education under Ron Harden. Yeah. 
and um, I think uh, it's fair to say that, that that tradition really has kind of continued from, from that time onwards. Well, absolutely, and I look at the number of people, the boys and men that are here now, and it's an army of generals, these people that were singing today. They all read four lines, Dave, you know, plain song. There are very few people in the world that can do that, so they are treasures, and they all grew from this wonderful music establishment, which is also an education establishment. Yeah. And um, Peter, as you, um, you, you've been involved in the Cathedral Music Establishment for, for such a long period, I mean, you must see a lot of familiar faces here today that perhaps you haven't, haven't seen uh, so recently. Certainly, many, many uh, faces that I haven't seen and many, many boys that have grown up to young men and uh, it's lovely to see them again in, uh, and some of them uh, have to remind me who they are because they look very different, of course. Well, that's always the way, isn't it? But um, now, uh, goes, go, you know, it, it, it takes on a life of its own, doesn't it, really? And, it does, yeah. and uh, look, it, it never really leaves you. I think it, it, it becomes part of your fabric. The, the education you received here was so strong. Um, for instance, we had on Wednesday evenings we would have a choir tea in the old chapter hall, which is still there, and there are many, many memories around that, and uh, some, some stories I probably can't tell. Uh, but uh, some of the things we did, uh, we were uh, members of a thing called the Play of Daniel in about 1960-61, and I think that was put on by the Gilderson Pius X, and we were all trebles and appeared in that. They set up a, a stage in the, um, in the crypt, which was only the, just then becoming a public space, and uh, this is a medieval play uh, written by the choristers of Beauvais Cathedral in the, about the 12th century. And it was one of the first sorts of things like that ever done in Sydney. And it was certainly the first outside broadcast that the ABC had ever done with its OB van. And uh, it was a quite a, a special memory for a 10-year-old. That that's indelible. But there are so many of those sorts of memories that this place gave us. It's, it's interesting, really, that, that this choir has... You know, it, 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 it's the place of so many firsts in Sydney and, and that it is... Being the oldest musical organisation in Australia is, you know, that's currently, currently operating, that's, that's, all, that's all quite I think that impressive. Across the, across the churches in Sydney, there's such a renaissance of liturgical music happening. It's so encouraging. But I think one of the main things that's happening here now at St Mary's Cathedral is the choir is now being properly marketed. Yeah. And uh, not to use a business term, but I think it needs to be like that because it is such an important Australian institution. People need to know about it. Absolutely. And um, Peter, how do you think the choir's repertoire fits in with the kind of musical landscape in Australia as a whole? Because Australia is quite a small country. I think that Thomas Wilson has been an amazing uh, leader for the choir. He's an amazing person and he's an amazing... Uh, educator and he's an amazing musician and he's sought to widen the repertoire of the choir and uh, and make uh, make them more relevant uh, and he brought back a lot more of the Gregorian and, and the true, true church music yeah so that that's it's good to have that revived in in the context in Sydney I think in general so we, we've heard this morning, actually, that this uh, reunion event is now going to become something annual. And so, now, will you be back? We hope to make it an annual event. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we're, we're looking at beginning to market this alumni association and make it a proper setup. And uh, I'm hoping to assist with that. And I'm going to be in touch with as many of these people as possible. In, in, in many ways, it's an easier job to do than, because there's only males involved, so there's no name changes. <laughs> so that's, that's my quest now to, is to start to put a bit of a heat under, under this organisation, certainly to make this an annual event. Brilliant. Well, thank you both very much for your time and uh, enjoy the rest of the day. Great, great.
So that was uh, Michael Hissey and Peter Nishaw there, and then we heard a little bit of the Gloria from the Vidor Mass as sung by the uh, massed ranks of current and former choristers of St Mary's Cathedral Choir. Um, so Father Ron Harden Thomas, he came along and he reformed the choir along the along the lines of the of the original as uh, as in Paulding's time. Um, how, where have things gone from there? Well, um, what a thing to have you know to to just suddenly have to um, create a completely different type of choir. Um, I don't know how Father Harden did it, but we do know that um, he was appointed early in 1955, and by the end of that year, the the choir was singing for masses. Uh, so he really must have uh, worked very hard to make that possible. Yes, a lot of a lot of hard work, rehearsal. Presumably, a certain amount of politicking as well, I of suspect. Course. Yeah, and only possible as well because of the special relationship with St Mary's Cathedral College, um, which is still our choir school and and where the boys receive their education. And it's only because they receive an excellent education here on site at the Cathedral College that they're able to be trained um, every day in order to sing as part of the Cathedral Choir. Yes, I mean you depend on. Uh, effectively the proximity for the boys to be able to to walk from rehearsal to school and back. That's right. It it would be very hard for us to operate the kind of um, programme that we do if they weren't here on site every day. So now, I mean, as as we've talked about in the past, and as I'm sure many of the listeners know, the boys have rehearsals four weekdays. That's right. Before school, four days. Yeah. um, And after school, two afternoons. Yeah. And then, of course, on Sundays. Yeah. It's it's quite uh, an intense program, uh, you know, with, and especially when then combined with the uh, the realities of school life. So that's certainly true. It is it is it is a, a big commitment for them, but um, in almost the same breath, I should should say that actually it's no bigger a commitment than many children take on for all sorts of other things. Um, like if you're particularly serious about sport um, or maybe some other form of performing arts like dance, um, it, it takes a, a daily commitment. Yeah. And um, I think whilst I, I certainly um, am upfront about the um, level of commitment that we expect from our choristers, I also have to say I think it can be overblown. Yes, indeed. Um, actually, we're, we're very careful about the amount that we ask of the boys and um, although they do work hard, actually the commitment is, is vastly less than it would be in any of the major English cathedral choir schools, for example. Yes, as we were hearing, sort of hinted at when we had uh, the new assistant director of music, Simon Naminsky. That's right, in here. He, yes. he did say that, didn't he? Yes, yes. He, he, he didn't mince his words, I think, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and look, again, it's because of the, the fact that the choir school's here that we're able to keep it as succinct as I believe it is. Mm, excellent. Now, um, we heard from Michael Hissey about the, the plan to put together a, a, a more formal association of alumni of the choir, that's uh, an interesting prospect and uh, no doubt something that you're you're getting behind. Very much so. I'm so pleased that it's finally happening. It's something we've talked about for a number of years. Um, but yes, Michael, um, bless him, has agreed to um, really become the force behind this. We've made now contact with um, a whole lot of people who sung in the choir before, many more than just the ones who were able to sing last Sunday. And uh, we want not only to keep in contact with them, but also to be able to invite them to um, a number of events each year. We will certainly have um, an annual reunion mass where former members of the choir are invited to come and sing along with the current choir. Um, 
we'll also be doing things like uh, having social events, dinners, um, that kind of thing, just in order to keep touch with one another. Yes, as you say, it's a sort of excellent network and uh, there's a lot of shared experience there among these gentlemen, no doubt. And I was just so impressed to see uh, their enthusiasm for for being in touch with one another again. That was really palpable, um, especially at the reception after Mass on Sunday. And so we want to keep facilitating that for them. Very much so. So if you are a former member of the choir, what what do you need to do at this point? Well, you need to go to our website, um, www.cathedralchoir.sydney. And on that, there is a a handy tab that you can click um, that will take you to a page where you can sign up and uh, become part of the mailing list and get on our radar, as it were. Yeah, for the alumni, that's excellent. And if you aren't, or even if you are, but you like this podcast... Um, there are a couple of things that you can do to help support us and encourage us and generally stroke our egos. Um, We like it when people subscribe in iTunes because that's good for statistics. Uh, And we like it also when people leave reviews, especially if they're positive. (laughs) But they haven't got to be, but, but, but they should be. Um, and uh, but also you can leave reviews or comments on uh, individual episodes of the podcast uh, on the the podcast uh, section of the website at cathedralchoir.sydney. I think that podcast. feedback, we, we want to encourage that feedback because I mean, I'm only finding out about podcasts and it's only because of, of you uh, um, dragooning <laughs> me in, into this that I, I've really come to, to mm. know about podcasts. Mm. And it's only after having recorded, did you say this is our seventh? This is our seventh episode, okay. yeah. Okay, yeah. well, um, just before we sat down to record this, I have started listening to podcasts myself. Yeah. Um, only a very few so far, but I'm, I'm discovering that this sort of this genre, I suppose, um, it, it's a little bit different than. Yeah, it's than, different from other media forms, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. You finally come to realise that. And I had to laugh because um, a friend of mine, um, who is actually uh, well, she's a journalist. She she produces a, an extremely um, prestigious Australian magazine. She came to say to me, um, oh, now, look, we're talking about doing a podcast. And I just wanted to ask you some questions about it. Like, oh, well, you've come to the right person. So you're, you're, you're now being held out as the great expert, are you, among your, your well, circle I, of friends? I wouldn't say that. But, no, uh, right. <laughs> but every now and then someone tells me that they've enjoyed the podcast. and uh, That's nice um, to hear. That's becoming less of a, of a strange thing to hear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Excellent. And um, to all five of you, thank you very much. <laughs> yes, um, thank you indeed. Yeah. And um, are there any podcasts that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? No, they haven't necessarily got to be directly related. To... Oh, I think that for me to do that would give too much away. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, it revealed too much about the psyche. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yes, for better or worse. All right. Well, um, until next time then, um, we will um, just uh, leave our listeners with a little bit of music again from last Sunday. And I think this is the end of your offertory motet. Uh, by Vaughan Williams. Oh, how amiable are thy dwellings. But the the final section of the motet may be better known than that. Ah, yes, the hymn tune St Anne, mm-hmm. uh, with the words, O oh God, our help in ages past. Thank you, Thomas. <laughs>